And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. All right, let's pray. Lord, be with Kevin as he preaches from your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work through him. Would it open our ears and our hearts to receive your word? And may we be transformed by the gospel into your likeness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning once again. Today I am excited because two of my favorite humans and their adorable offspring are with us this morning, Kim and Barry Still. Um, We are going to pray for them and hear for them a little bit later. And be sure to grab a lunch um, if you want to and join us afterwards in the activities building. But the, the Stills are serving Christ in Brazil. And an emphasis of the ministry they work with, Restore Brazil, has been to serve in truly one of the most difficult neighborhoods in the world. It's quite ironically called the City of God. Maybe you've seen the film. Um, That's just how notorious the place is. But on your your visit there, and we, we hope to take a team there next spring, you'll likely question whether God's anywhere to be found there. You'll see machetes, machine guns right out in the open. I realize I'm not doing the best pitch for the trip right now, but um, they tend to treat people that are there to help pretty nicely. Um, But there's this part of that favela or slum they call crackland because there are desperate addicts everywhere. There's drug transactions happening right out in the open. What would, would move a family like them to go serve in a place like that? And why would they remain hopeful that anything meaningful could ever really be done in a place that desperate? Well, I would argue it's passages like these that we see here in Matthew. The Messiah is on the move. He's doing miracles of mercy in the margins. We've been walking slowly through Matthew 9 over the last couple years. We're in section now here in chapter 9 where Jesus is showing his authority, really his authority over everything. Things like disabilities and demons that we're going to see here today. Let me say again, we've been so blessed, haven't we, by the job that that Aaron's been doing up here. Last week, he walked us through verses 18 through 26, where Jesus heals a woman who suffers from lifelong bleeding. And he also raises a woman, the daughter of the synagogue ruler, from the dead. Verse 27 says that Jesus passed on from there. We think that Matthew is probably talking about that ruler's house. Verse 28 then also says that Jesus entered the house. Where he goes next, we're not totally sure, but he's probably going back to Matthew's place where he just dined with tax collectors and sinners. There he'd gone straight to the margins and made the Pharisees really mad, right? Well, that's what we see Jesus do here as well. The Messiah moves into the margins and does miracles of mercy. Slim Shady, I think, would be proud of that. The Messiah moves into the margins and does miracles of mercy. 
Let's walk through the passage now, and then I'm going to get to some things that I think the Lord could be telling us together today. We see the Messiah here. What? What do we mean by that? Well, these two blind men, they called Jesus the son of David in verse 27. The son of David. Now, this is the first time in the gospel that anyone calls the Lord by this title. That is, other than Matthew, our author, who refers to Jesus as the son of David in the gospel's very first verse, Matthew 1.1. Now, when these men call out to Jesus this way, they're saying that Jesus is the long-awaited king, that he is the deliverer that they'd been hoping for, a descendant of their great king David, who as 2 Samuel prophesied would have a throne established for him by God that would last forever and ever, 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. These blind men, think about this, they see what so many who had functioning eyes could not see, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the anointed one. That's what that label means. God's king who would bring his kingdom and make everything that was so upside down right side up again. They call out to Jesus, hey, hey, Messiah, king, son of David, help us, please come help us. And that Messiah meets them in the margins. Now, this is something that we've seen repeatedly in Matthew. I don't know that we've emphasized yet. Jesus going toward people who've been pushed toward the edges. The woman we saw last week who was considered unclean. We've seen lepers who they would have to walk through and say unclean and everybody would scatter. Those possessed by demons, those considered traitors or trash, the sick, the lame. Jesus, throughout the gospel, goes right to them, to the last, the least, the lost, and it's what happens here. These blind men here, along with the man who's called mute, that scholars think likely couldn't hear or speak, they were, as Michael Green put it, the unprivileged, the outcasts of that world. People that the rabbis wouldn't have given a thought to that individuals would have looked down upon. Jesus gives his attention to them. He speaks right to them. He touches them even. He welcomes them into the house. Jesus, we see, he doesn't pander to the rich and powerful, but he picks the poor and the weak. He says, the kingdom of heaven is for you. There in the margins, the Messiah does miracles. So the blind men, it says, follow him inside. He touches their eyes. He makes this pronouncement, and suddenly they're wide open, and they can see what a miracle. He then casts out a demon, and the man speaks. What wonders. It's like creation all over again. When God just spoke, and it came to be, where he's speaking and bringing healing. He's rolling back the clock, or you could say he's moving things forward. He's restoring his creation again. Jesus is. But so many have pointed out, I think rightly, that this is also an illustration of our spiritual condition before the fall. Before we're saved, I should say. We can't see the glory of Christ, but Jesus will speak He'll touch us. He'll heal our spiritual eyes, our hearts. These men can now see physically, but more importantly, before that, they could see and recognize the king. After this happens, though, catch what Jesus says in verse 30. 
See that no one knows about it. What? Really? This is what some people have called the messianic secret, and it, it puzzles us. Why would Jesus do this? We saw it back in, in Matthew 8, verse 4, where Jesus heals someone suffering from leprosy. Verse 30 here says, Jesus sternly warned them. So that's a strong word, sternly. He's kind of upset about this. Guys, don't go talking about this. And why again? Well, he came to seek and save the lost, to die for them, for us on a cross. These miracles are important. Again, they're, they're signs of the coming kingdom, but they could not hinder his main mission. He did not want them to hasten his death. He didn't want all these crowds coming at him. He didn't want the Pharisees getting upset before the right time. They were going to get upset, yeah. But he asked them to hush, at least for now, but they couldn't contain themselves. They don't listen. The miracles are just too awesome, right? These miracles the Messiah does in the margins are miracles of mercy. That's how these blind men call out to him. Have mercy on us, son of David. Michael Card, who's a musician and a theologian, he calls this the perfect prayer of the new kingdom. Have mercy on us, son of David. And he says this is something when asked that Jesus never fails to give. These men know their need. They ask him to take pity on them. And catch this. They know their Bibles better than their teachers. What do I mean by that? Well, they know passages like Isaiah 35, 5, and 6. That the Messiah would bring mercy, that he would help the needy. And they see these verses come to life in his ministry. Listen to Isaiah 35, 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The blind see, the mute sing. We can see that happening right here, and those things happened it says, in response to faith. Christ says in verse 28, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And the blind guy says, yes, Lord. This likely means they also see him as God. They call him Lord, right? And Christ says in verse 29, according to your faith, be it done to you. Now, some here have tried to argue that according to means that they somehow were able to conjure up really strong faith they were able to believe really hard, so then Jesus was almost forced to respond. But I think that's missing the point, pretty majorly. Christ is more saying, because you have faith, even if it's weak, I'm going to heal you. They cry out for mercy. They know their need. They're dependent upon him for help. As R.T. France explains, they have what he calls practical confidence in the power of Jesus. And the Lord heals them. On the spot, the Messiah moves into the margins and does miracles of mercy. Now, I want to shift now to what this passage might mean for us today. I want us to think about two big questions. And with each, I'm going to offer a couple of encouragements, really challenges for us. And here's the first question. Will we trust Jesus for the great things? Will we, will we trust Jesus for the great things? Remember what's going on here. Two men are blind. 
right? We can just read this so fast, we don't really think about it. These people are blind. We don't know exactly how long here. They haven't been able to see. One man can't speak. It's likely, again, also he can't hear. Last week, a woman had a condition where she had bled for years and years. A girl was dead, right? Usually people stay dead. But people believed, and Jesus worked. Do we really think that Jesus can do things like this? Yeah, back then. What about now? Here's my first challenge for us today. Pray big. Would we pray big? Would we pray and pray boldly? Would we make audacious requests and actually believe that Jesus can and maybe even wants to answer? Yeah, I'm talking about physical things, first of all. Jesus does not choose to heal all the time, right? That's, not why, I'm, that's why I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, but we still believe that he does, or do we? Most of the time, I don't think we bother to ask. I want you to hear what Christ's brother James writes later in his letter that we have in our Bibles. We sometimes just skim past. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Every week, we, the elders, are in the back. We're there just waiting to pray for you about anything. Also, even that God would touch your body, make you whole again. But will we even ask? What about other things, broadening out, spiritual things? Maybe you feel like your marriage is failing. Or you're caught in this downward spiral of lust and you don't know how to recover. You're crippled by anxiety or debilitating fear. You feel like you're drowning as a parent. Maybe you're about to lose your job. Have you thought to ask God for help? Do you really believe that Jesus could restore? Some of you here might know our brother Doyle Swinney. Um, he's consistently come to our prayer meeting every Wednesday at noon. For some time, he's had this prayer request. Um, many years ago, he and his brother had this falling out, and they'd never been reconciled. Some, some careless words were spoken. They were never really able to talk it out. Forgiveness just didn't happen, but Doyle just kept praying, and he asked us to pray with him. And then fairly recently, his brother was struck with cancer, and he was getting worse and worse, and Doyle asked us to keep praying, and we did. At first, his brother was highly resistant, still would not talk to him at all. He's down in Florida. He says, do not come here. Don't bother. Doyle so much wanted to see him, and he wanted to see things made right. The miraculous happened. Jesus heard, worked. They've come back together as, as two brothers before he very soon dies. What is going on in your life that you think Jesus can't repair? How might he be telling you here today to pray big? Here's a second encouragement. Speak out. Speak out. What do these men do again after they regain their sight? Jesus, again, tells them to be quiet, but they just can't shut up. 
That's a conversation I'd kind of like to listen into someday. The men are, hey, we're sorry, Lord. You know, we, we tried to obey, but, you know, we just couldn't, couldn't stop ourselves. And Jesus is like, yeah, you didn't exactly obey, but, you know, I kind of expected it. It was kind of hilarious. I was kind of proud of you, too. At the end of this book, um, what do we get here? We get the Great Commission. We'll be talking about that over and over again until we actually get to it. But this is where Jesus says to go to the nations to proclaim what he's done. And think about this. If these men just can't shut up when they've been told to do exactly that, how can we not broadcast this news when Jesus has told us to speak up? What has Jesus done for you? How have you seen him work in your life? How has he saved you? How has he brought you to him? What blessings has he showered upon you? What dangers has he rescued you from? How can we not speak out? How can we not praise his name? I know this is awkward, but let's just be real here. Hasn't the church in America just pretty much given up on sharing our faith? Really? I mean, can't we just acknowledge that? I mean, who wants to be that guy, you know, the one that's bringing the cringe, you know, to the break room, to the teacher's lounge, whatever it would be? You know, we are sending people to North Africa, to Japan, to Brazil, but we, I think we can say that even though the, the church in America still does that, that we're pretty much not sharing the gospel with anyone here. Talk about conversations in heaven that might be awkward. Do we want to be in the new heavens and the new earth, you know, talking to the first Christians we see in Acts or to the millions of martyrs over the years and try to explain how we in America just kind of decided to move past all that, how we just chose to skip over that part in our Bibles. Now, to be clear, I don't really think we're going to have that conversation in heaven. I don't think we'll be pondering our regrets. I think we're going to be focusing on Jesus. But we should ponder now how ludicrous that is. There's no category in the Bible, there's no category throughout church history for believers who will not speak out. Will we trust Jesus for big things to actually work in those awkward conversations? And they will be awkward, especially today and especially if we're rusty. Will we trust him to work as we speak out, as we see people brought from darkness to light? Church, why have we stopped making big requests from God? I have some ideas, and this applies to me and all of us here. I would say fear, first of all. Right, that we'll ask God for stuff and he won't answer? He won't say anything at all? Isn't that fear? We don't want to be let down? We've given over to cynicism? When it comes to speaking out, isn't the main issue that we fear what people think more than what Jesus thinks? Doesn't that make us keep our mouths shut? Another reason why I think we don't trust Jesus with the big conformity Conformity to this fallen world that surrounds us. We haven't been transformed by God. We've conformed to our surroundings. We act like the universe is closed, that the material is all there is, that miracles don't happen. We've absorbed that. We've imbibed that. And so now we don't even bother to ask. We've also all bought into this dichotomy 
that completely boxes us in. That there are facts and there's faith, right? They're two separate things. They never meet. We shouldn't ever bring up what we believed. believe. That's just not accepted. It's not allowed in our world today. And we've just said, yes, sir, and have conformed. But I want you to hear, and I've said this before from up here, that as our society becomes more and more post-Christian, we could, you know, weep and gnash our teeth. No. But doesn't that really actually provide an opportunity, right, for Jesus to show up, to answer big prayers, to work through our speech? That's when the power of God shines, right? It's, it's why the gospel is just burning and spreading throughout China, throughout the Middle East, right? That's where Jesus makes himself look amazing. Not when Christians are a moral majority, if that was ever the case, but when we're a prophetic minority. Will we believe he's the Messiah who will do miracles? Again, we can't forget the resurrection. He's the one who's raised from the dead. I think here's what this all comes down to, though. Why we struggle to trust, to ask great things. We just have lost sight of our dependence. We think we're strong. We don't see our need. We're not desperate for mercy as we see here in these characters. Frankly, we're not doing anything really that's very hard, so we don't see a need to call out for help, and we will not, of course, speak out. I've been reading uh, two different books lately that are both overlapping. They're both talking about identity and, and what's so wrong with the world we live in today and really why we all seem to be stressed out and anxious. One's Alan Noble's You Are Not Your Own, John Stark's The Secret Place of Thunder. They're both great. You may see them on the resource table here soon. But they ask again, why are we so anxious? What is wrong with us? And they both answer that today we're expected to do something that we weren't made for or ever equipped to handle to build an identity to make that our responsibility, to become someone, to project someone, and it all comes down to performance. And yeah, mainly on social media. We have this burden we feel to express ourselves, to perform for others, to create, to maintain this image. This is instead of seeing our great need, receiving mercy from him, accepting this identity that we have in Adam, but then in Christ, and walking by faith from rejoicing in his grace. It's hard for us to trust Jesus for big things because we're too busy trying to do big things, to project big things for ourselves. But the Lord wants us to be people of faith. Here's a second question I want us to hear this morning to wrestle with. Will we follow Jesus into the hard things? Don't forget what we see here. Three men everyone else would have ignored. They're invisible men. Jesus makes them feel seen. He welcomes them into his family. Will we follow Jesus? Will we go where he goes? A few weeks ago, I showed up on a morning like this, and there was chaos everywhere to be found. Just minutes before we started here, a homeless couple had spent the night literally out front, got involved in this dispute. 
Knives were drawn, the police came, and then guns were brought out. And this was, yes, right at about 9.45 a.m. when many of you are, are coming in. The front entrance again. Let me tell you, this is nothing I ever witnessed when I was in Rio. Let me tell you. But it was not something we didn't expect, right? And it's not something that we wished wouldn't have happened or would have gone away. The couple heard the gospel. God used us together as a team. If we want to follow Jesus, the Messiah, we have to embrace the margins and be willing to carry his mercy. Here's my my first challenge related to this question. Look around. Look around. In the passage that follows that Darren will get to in a couple of weeks, Jesus says to look to the fields. There's a harvest, he says, out there if we'll just see. And he says to pray for more laborers for that harvest. And of course, as I'm sure Darren will point out, we have to realize that the prayer also includes us, right? But again, Jesus also invites us to look to the margins, to the edges of the field, to the places that others don't see. As we've seen in Matthew, Jesus came for the poor, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty. Look around, think about the places you go, your work. Are there people there that others ignore, that keep over to themselves? At the store, do you talk to the cashier who maybe seems to burst, about to burst into tears? What about the unhoused person asking for help downtown? I have to confess, I usually just buzz by. Are we looking in the margins? Are we looking for opportunities? God has placed us in this neighborhood We're in the first ward. God gave us this building. He put us in this exact spot. This has been historically one of the the toughest, most neediest parts of the city, and God wants us to be faithful here. So far, it's not been too easy. But will we carry his mercy? Will we believe that he can do miracles? To be really transparent, we need a team of people to rise up who feel called to urban ministry, and ministry right around our building. Will we follow Jesus, but maybe could God be leading you to help lead the charge in that? I want you to think about something else, too. This passage is dealing with three people with disabilities. Did you notice that? Jesus cares about them, and he calls us to the same, to make a place at the table, to seek accessibility for all. Yes, all lives matter, but it often seems in our culture and why it often needs to be clarified that some don't. It's why that we as Christians need to be the ones saying and demonstrating black lives matter. We need to be comfortable saying that and acknowledging that. I want to add something that we see here too. Disabled lives matter, right? Jesus walks through, he he gives people attention, and he ultimately heals them. But we have to first look around and actually notice people. Who are the forgotten in our city, in our world, and how can we, first of all, notice? Because often we don't. A second challenge, reach out. Through our words, by our deeds, we have to walk toward people as Jesus does. Get to know people as Jesus does. Be willing to get close even to touch them as Jesus does, right? 
you didn't just walk around touching lepers in that day, right? For multiple reasons, for, yeah, ritual cleanliness reasons, but just because you didn't want to get leprosy, right? Jesus went straight to the people in the margins. We have a group of people in our church that are passionate about children, about those who've been forgotten. We've had many folks that have fostered and adopted provided short-term respite care. We have a number of people working with, volunteering with CASA, which seeks to give a voice to kids without their own. We have Aaron Harris, who's a leader with Love Columbia that strives to help churches care for the needy in our city. There's all kinds of opportunities there. I know he'd be happy to talk to you about those anytime you'd like, but God calls us to not just notice, but to actually do something to reach out. Where else would he call us to go, church? Now, my wife likes to say that social media can be used for good, despite all the insanity. And I think one way, and we don't want to dismiss this, is it's just a good way to keep up with friends, right? To, to see what's up in their lives, to see how God is using them. In many cases, to just see their, their families expand, Recently, I've been seeing some photos of the daughter of some former Chorus members, a couple that I was privileged to stand up and officiate their wedding. We sent out to do ministry. I've seen a photos, photos of their daughter, now a teenager, in her softball uniform, posted by her parents, and she seems to be thriving. But, but back in the day, she was anything but that. I remember doing their premarital counseling, and this hasn't happened before. I'm here with these dear friends. When they tell me that there's a strong chance that they were going to adopt almost immediately after their wedding, I was like, whoa. I thought they were crazy. But the woman's sister, who was struggling with addiction, really drowning in a drug abuse, had completely neglected her daughter. She'd allowed that toddler to go almost completely unsupervised, that girl at one point actually fell out of a second-story window, survived miraculously. But this couple, again, they're, they're heading into this massive change in their lives, but they weren't going to let that stuff happen again, and they took that girl into her lives, lives, and again, she's just flourishing. The couple chose, because of Christ's love for them, to head straight into the trials, to follow him into the hard things. But... Don't most of us steer away from that as fast as we can? You know, my wife talks some about down the road adopting teenagers, and I'm just like, hey, let's just survive this round. You know, they're, they're awesome and all, but I'm just like, are you crazy? But I know why that we were, were pushed that way. It's because we want comfort, right? It's why we just run. Um, we, we don't run like Jesus toward people with needs, because that gets messy. We'd rather keep our blinders on to care for ourselves, to keep our lives simple and tidy. Another reason, and I think this is the biggest one, is forgetfulness. We fail to remember our own need. We forget what Jesus has done for us, his mercy, our dependence ourselves. We forget that he left heaven became flesh, this big truth, the incarnation, you know, Christmas, what we celebrate, he did all that so he could draw near and make us whole. He did that for us because we're that needy. 
It's been a wild ride in America the past several years. You know, the fighting is ramped up, the economy is tanked, hurting people all around us. It seems like more than ever. But I want you to hear that again, this is where the church historically has thrived, right? Not when everybody, you know, looks Christian and all, everybody goes to church on Sunday. That's not, you know, when the, when the church has necessarily thrived. If you read church history, it's back when the people of God were the ones who were literally rescuing the babies that had been cast out in the streets of the Roman Empire. They were the ones that cared for the poor to the point that the Roman leaders noticed and were perplexed. They're the ones that risked their lives for the sick. This is actually our opportunity to serve in word and deed, to speak up, to reach out. Will we carry his mercy into the margins? In other words, will we love? What this all comes down to is compassion, right? This is what we see in the Messiah. He looks and sees, he feels the needs of others, he moves toward them, he's propelled toward the margins. Will we live lives of mercy or just settle for the American dream? In that book by John Stark, which is so good, we, we read one of his books a couple years ago for the one read, The Possibility of Prayer, it's great. Um, here he talks about another problem we face, so I talked about performance, he says, here's, here's also, here's really why we're so eaten up with anxiety. We're not only taught that we have to perform, we have to create this identity, we have to keep it up, we also desperately want to have that identity affirmed, right? That's why we see, you know, that heart light up, you know? You get the dopamine hit or whatever it is. We want to be affirmed, and we feel all this ridiculous pressure to affirm the performances of others. Or what happens? We risk being ridiculed, even canceled. What does that do? It keeps us from taking risks, right? Either from how we live or what we say, from speaking out, from reaching out, all of that, that quest to perform and that quest to be affirmed, it moves us away from love. I was talking about this with my daughter just this last week. And I, I shared, as Christians, we don't have to perform, right? That works against our joy. By faith, we're given an identity by grace from him. We're sons and daughters of God if we believe. We don't have to earn anything. We don't have to maintain anything by trying to keep attention, to maintain, to, to keep getting affirmation, not from God, not from people around us. And what that does is it frees us from being controlled by, from being rattled by what others think. And we cannot care in the, in the good way, right? And that propels us toward faithfulness in a world that resists but desperately needs the Lord. On that note, there's something we skipped over in this passage. What happens after the mute man gets up and speaks? Some marvel, verse 33 some proclaim, never was anything like this seen in Israel. What do others say? The religious teachers, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. We're going to get to that in way more detail later. But they cry out, hey, it's not the power of God doing these things. Actually, it's Satan doing them. You know, the Pharisees, they proclaim they're protecting the people, but they're really, they're really protecting their platforms. Here's the irony, of course. 
They're the ones working for Satan. They're the ones, risky, they're the ones resisting the work of God. Satan has blinded their minds, 2 Corinthians 4 puts it. If, if we're in Christ, that's who we once were. For those that don't believe, that's where they are today. If we see our need for him, if we walk in faith, that leads us to see the needs of others. It leads us to go forth in love. Some will get excited, they'll join us, right? But others will hate us, they'll oppose us, just as Jesus experiences here. Like the teacher, so the student. Who gets called evil today? Those who stand with the Father. If we follow Jesus, taking his mercy into the margins, we sure cannot do it for the affirmation. No, we have to do it by faith and purely out of love. Carlos, let's move with our Messiah into the margins, remembering and relying upon his mercy toward us, trusting him to do miracles as we do. Just to wrap up, one author I really enjoy keeping up with is Brett McCracken. He's the arts editor for the Gospel Coalition. Recently, he penned this article entitled, Why Multiverse Stories Let Us Down. So I hope I don't offend any of you, but I agree with his first point. When he argues that the whole multiverse thing has gotten pretty boring, he says this, he says, when literally anything is possible, nothing is scary because no death is final and no peril is ultimate, there's always another universe where things turn out differently. But then he goes on to try to explain the appeal of the multiverse. He says, all of these different Spider-Men, you know, if you saw the, the most recent movie, um, that quote's in a second, but if he says all the Spider-Man rushing at us, that can be kind of amusing. It can feel at first like this experience of dragging out all of your old toys from all the various eras and kind of pretending like they're having a big fight. It can be fun for a while. But he says his main point is that the multiverse resonates with our deep desire for transcendence. And he says it's a secular version. It's a sci-fi substitute for heaven. He explains it this way in the quote. Where former generations found hope in the reality of life after death, the multiverse generations finds hope in the prospect of life in other universes. It's a coping mechanism in an anxious world that feels fundamentally uncontrollable. Maybe my life is better in a different universe. Perhaps I can just timeline shift or reboot myself. He says, we need a hope for this universe, right? The one that we live in. It's what we have. And he says, King Jesus is the true and better canon event around which everything turns. Now, to go back to what I said earlier, we don't always see the type of miracles we see here in this passage, right? We're not a health wealth church. We don't name it and claim it here. But we believe he can. But he often chooses to say no. It's not just because our faith is weak, right? We see imperfect faith throughout the gospel here that, that Jesus interacts with. Family, King Jesus has come. He's brought his kingdom, but it's not here in full. Blind people usually stay blind. Same with those who can't speak. One day, though, he'll return with it, bring a kingdom. All disability will disappear. Every demon will be restored. We'll be in a restored creation, the perfect city of God. No more pain, 
sadness, sickness, or death. What we see here in these miracles is a glimpse of that kingdom that will come when the world will be made right, and that's real hope for this universe. Until then, we're to walk by faith and live in love. Let's pray. God, would you work in us um, what we see here? Lord, would you work in us faith that doesn't settle, faith that sees you in all your glory and is just hopeful for, yeah, what you'll do one day, but what you can do even here. And Lord, would you just shake us out of our comfort, our complacency, and drag us along behind you sharing the gospel, showing love. Father, would you forgive us for um, trying to perform for you, for other people, and dishonoring you, but also just robbing ourselves of joy, Lord? Would you allow us to just rest in your, um, your assessment, your love for us in a way that, that changes everything, Father? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.